This is an ABC podcast. Our best of for 2022 week continues, and today it's my conversation with Tony Bull. Tony was an 11-year-old in his Risdon Vale primary school uniform when he first got in trouble with the police. He and his mates were stealing money left out for milk and firewood from around their working-class neighbourhood in Hobart. They then started breaking into houses, mostly for the adrenaline rush. Tony went on to spend the best part of 30 years in and out of boys' homes and then jails all around the country including a stint for safe-cracking. In his 20s, Tony was in Risdon Prison in Hobart when he joined a unique club which changed how people saw him and how he saw himself. Hi, Tony. How you doing? I'm really well. Tell me about this club that you were invited to join when you were in Risdon. What was it? It was the Spartan Dividing Club. Um, it was a... Um a, a debating club within Risdon Prison. And um, it was a life-changing experience for me and many others that I was saying. And because I was such a, you know, I, I debated a lot in the yards, it was recommended that I join the club by a couple of friends in the yard. What was the topic of your first debate, do you remember? <laughs> yeah, I do. Because um, <clears throat> it was an internal debate. We had internal and external debates and this one was an internal debate just amongst the prisoners in the jail, part of the guys in the club. And the topic was that <laughs> the love boat is a floating brothel. And, I never um, debated that one at high school, Tony, I have to say. That must be a no, unique topic no. for Risdon yeah. Prison. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we had many, you know, because we could... <laughs> and, you know, there, there was, for, for the sake of the argument, this one was a funny one. And we had lots and, you know, we made up our own topics and, along the way. And on the external debates, it was a little bit different. You know, the outside team had to pick a topic or we had to pick a topic. But yeah, my first was um, the love boat is a floating brothel. <laughs> Were you mm. nervous on that first debate? What do you remember? Uh, I was absolutely terrified. You know, I, I grew up considerably shy. Um, lovely house with beautiful mum and three sometimes okay sisters. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I, I never used to speak much, so I was absolutely terrified. Did you have palm cards or how did you prepare? <laughs> I, I had to have palm cards, you know. I sat down for a week um, and typed up my argument. I was first speaker and I had every word <laughs> that I was to speak typed down on little cards. And... Um, you know, while I thought it helped me, it went quite badly, actually, because I was that nervous. I got mixed up and muddled and the cards got mixed up. So I ditched them and went on my own. And um, that made the whole process a, a little bit easier. But, you know, as far as confidence goes, through the years of being a part of the club, I grew enormously. Um, way too much, some would consider, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, confidence and and the self-esteem, if you like, that I actually got from the club was, well, life-changing in many ways. You mentioned, Tony, that you had debates with teams yeah. outside of the prison. What kind of people would come and, and debate you guys in Risdon? 
you know, lots of politicians and lots of influential people within the community because we debated. Well, Spartan Spartan Debating Club was a part of the outside roster and they actually won the Tasmanian Debating Championship, um, I think, in the early 80s, you know, as part of the, the proper roster. So we had a, a lot of people and influential people over the years come in and, and, and debate with us. What was it like when those those influential people and those clubs came into the prison? What were those nights like? Oh, it was fantastic. You know, we, we, we didn't get many benefits in, in Risdon as, as a prison, but, you know, we had cakes and sandwiches and coffee and, you know, we, we tricked it up a little bit and, and made it an enjoyable night. But it was also really nice to connect with, um, you know, influential and, and just other people within the community because, you know, we had rostrum clubs and, and university and Toastmasters and, and clubs like that. One of the debates you had with the rostrum club was about marriage. Tell me about that debate. <laughs> that was, my um, rest in post, that was um, an external debate. I think it might have been the 25th anniversary of the club. And the topic was that we should renew our marriages licences every five years. And um, we were the affirmative. And the, the three guys on, on the debate was myself as first speaker. I was dressed because I was president of the club at that time and i come up with some little ideas that they, they allowed us to do. And I as first speaker was dressed in a full wedding dress, veil, the whole lot, the lipstick and, <laughs> and and all that sort of stuff. And I was the wife, of course, not not something that everyone wants to be in prison, but, you know, for the sake of the debate, it was a fantastic night. Um, the second speaker was Chopper Reed, and um, he was me husband, right, for the <laughs> night. <laughs> and the, the, the third speaker was Baldy. And he was dressed in a, a judge's uniform, like a Supreme Court judge uniform. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, it was to be a funny debate. And my first speaker got up and I just attacked my husband big time. I put him down this, that much. This being Chopper Reed in this case. Yeah, he's being Chopper. Yeah, and, and so I really hammered him. And... Um, and then he got up and then it was my turn and seriously, I've never heard a man conversate and chat like he can. He could make you seriously think that white was black. Um, he was a phenomenal chatter and, um, yeah, he, of course, got up and hammered me big time. <laughs> <laughs> hammered me big time, yeah. I'd never done it again. But, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure we won the debate at the end of the night. But, yeah, it was a, it was a great night. We were all dressed up and, and uh, having a brilliant time. The judge might have been too scared to let you lose, I'm wondering. Well, the, it was all. Well, we, we we did mention that quite a bit in jest. You know, if the scores don't go right, we just might not get home. <laughs> um, yeah, but but we had external adjudicators and proper adjudicators, like all, all that sort of stuff. And you know, when we won, we won fairly, and when we lost, we lost fairly too. But yeah, we've had some fantastic nights. I remember me first external debate and it was first night when our family were allowed to rent 
we managed to allow that to happen. Anyway, my mum's sitting there and she's freaking out about the whole prison situation for one and I, I can't remember what the... Oh, the laughter was better than sex. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I walked out from behind the door because no one knew we were doing this, dressed in a... This seems to be a bit of a following for me, but but it's not. I was dressed in a maid's uniform, fishnet stockings, blonde wig, red lipstick, all the deal, you know. I looked like an absolute hooker in every sense of the word. And, and I've come out to speak from behind the door. Mum didn't know it was me. <laughs> but as soon as I opened my mouth, she nearly fell off the chair, seriously. <laughs> What was yeah. special about having your family, having your mum come in to see you in that debating club? Well, you know, my, I think it was one of my first or second times in prison and my mum didn't understand what the system was like. You know, I, I, grew, <laughs> I grew up in Risdenvale and, you know, there was a road, Lantana Road, and then there was the prison property. Um, so we were always pretty close to the prison. Well, you could say I spent me, me youth next door and me, me adults, adulthood in, in, <laughs> inside, so Risden Vale through and through. But, you know, my mum didn't understand prison and what it was like and for her to see, you know, that it wasn't so regimental, so dangerous, you know, not a good thing to see when your son's dressed in a dress in prison. <laughs> but she got to feel a little bit more relaxed and, and of course, spend some time with the son when she doesn't usually get to do that. And it was the same with every other family member that come in. You know, they were truly treasured nights. And, um, you know, if you're getting up and to speak, you can, you can be courageous, you can be bold and, you know, show off a little bit if you like. And, and you know, you just get a sense of togetherness with your family that you don't really get so often these days, even outside of prison. So it was brilliant. You were saying yeah. that that debating club gave you confidence. I guess it's also <laughs> a way of teaching uh, to have an argument without violence, to have an argument just with words. Well, the, the superintendent of the prison once, you know, because I was jail representative for a long time, and went from yard representative to jail representative where I stood up on behalf of every yard except for the protection yard. Um, and, you know, if we had a problem, we were able to discuss it within the system and with the uniform and we were able to get a lot and understand a lot. So, But he said to me one day that I was like the Pied Piper of people. <laughs> you know, I said, why is that, Mr Harris? And he said, well, you talk and everyone follows. And um, that's what the debating club taught me. It taught me the the skill to have a, a, a level playing field conversation and but also it enabled me to be the voice and stand up for something if it isn't right. Before that night where you pretended to be man and wife at the, at the Risdon <laughs> Debating Club, yeah. had you had much to do with Chopper Reed in jail? Oh, you know, you 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 do in, in a prison in a prison sense where you've got five yards in in line with each other, and while you don't hang out with each other twenty four hours a day, you you see each other in passing. You know, it's just that sense of community that you get when you when you're outside living in a neighbourhood. It's exactly the same thing, just shrunk to a 
do a massive degree and you, you, you've got no choice to connect with some people, all the people, it's, you know, the relationship where they have with them depends on who they are, I suppose. But, yeah, I knew Chopper and I knew him quite well. And how was he to, mm. to get on with? Oh, he was, you know, um, he was fine, you know. <laughs> did I believe everything he said? No, not at all. You know, did I like a lot of things he said in particular about people that I'm close to and my mates? Well, no. But... It's his story and, you know, he'd never done anything wrong by me or by anyone else within the system that I was in. So, you know, very likeable. You say, Tony, that you grew up right next to the prison there in in Risdon Vale. Yeah, they hated me well before I got there. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) Oh, well, as kids, you know, especially we grew up in a working class neighbourhood and, you know, there was four, five lads in the street. And we always used to hang as, as youngsters, you know, eight, nine and ten, and we used to build forts over in the prison and build tree houses. Like and in the prison? Oh, in the prison grounds. What, what you used to break in, in to the prison grounds as a kid? Oh, well, I, I did sneak in there once when they were building a hospital, but I didn't, well, now everyone knows about <laughs> it, but anyway. Um, but we never, we used to just jump the paddock. It was just an ordinary fence, you know, we were in the paddock, but it was prison grounds and you weren't allowed to run there and they were always telling us to get off and pulling down our forts and and doing all that sort of stuff. So we, well, I've always had a, I was going to say love-hate, but it's hate-hate relationship, really. Um, Living so yeah. close to it as a kid, was it somewhere that you thought, I want to avoid being on the inside or, or uh, did you imagine that you'd be there one day? How did you think about it? I, I never imagined that I'd be there as a youngster and, you know, you, you, you think a lot of things and I, I remember the sirens used to go off sometimes and they'd just test them and um, I'd always think that someone was escaping and I'd straight under my bed, you know, I was never brave as a kid. You know, if they were getting to me, they were getting through me three sisters first, don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we, it, it, it just had that scary feel to it. I remember as a youngster, we used to, like in playing in the, in the street, we used to hear a lot of whistles going off and, well, what I thought was screaming, but it was yelling and carrying on you know, within the jail on a Saturday and Sunday. And, of course, you think, oh, blokes are getting attacked and bashed and all that sort of stuff. Well, it wasn't until I got there that they, you know, that's a sport day. They play football on the weekend. <laughs> so I, I, I had a couple of, um, I've had a couple of other experiences in other jails in Australia, but walking into Risdon as a 18-year-old, um, I was scared to death just because of that stuff that I heard when I was growing up. You know, I, I, I was terrified. What were yeah. things like at, at home when you were a kid, Tony? I was pretty lucky. I, I, I was pretty lucky. I had a beautiful mum. She's been dead 25 years now. I still miss her, but I, I had a beautiful mum and, and three pretty good sisters. Mum had an abusive partner that we had to deal with for a long time, and but... As far as mum and my sisters go, I, I grew up in a fantastic house. I was loved, I was cared for. How did, yeah. you, how did you first get in trouble with the police then as a young bloke? Now, I'm not blaming this on the people that I hung with, but 
well, it was just part of the deal. I was hanging with a particular group of guys at school and I was thinking about it on the way here and, you know, I'm not too sure whether we went off with an absolute intent to break into someone's house. But anyway, off we went and one lunchtime and I found, uh, I think it was, might have been $80 on an envelope stuck to the door for the woodman. And that's when I thought, well, and that's pretty cool when you're, <laughs> when you're 11 and 12 and 13, 80 bucks or 100 bucks in your pocket, you feel like a millionaire. So it sort of went from that, finding envelopes on doors left for the milkman or the woodman, to actually going into the houses ourselves. And um, I think over a period of time, we basically done a, a street in, in Gilston Bay, minus a few. And, um, yeah, but we, it just went from one thing to another, really. And what were you doing um, with the money back then? We just spent it as, I mean, we wasn't getting, you know, hundreds and thousands of mm. dollars every day. We, we were just spending it, buying cigarettes, going to the shop and, you know, being the rich kid for the day or two, really. Yeah. And My what parents hap- never knew. What happened when you were, when you were caught? How did that play out? I, I, I remember me going out on my own and, uh, well, from memory I was on my own, but <laughs> I got seen and I laugh because it, it's a little bit silly. And uh, But I got seen climbing through a uh, uh, house window at lunchtime and I, <laughs> and I just happened to be the only person just about in the school that was wearing the whole school uniform. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it went from there. Yeah, and it, it, yeah, it went from there. And this was yeah. your own neighbourhood, as you say, a working class neighbourhood, families mm-hmm. like yours. You didn't feel any guilt or conscience about stealing these people's money for the woodman and and the milk well, money. Well, in, in saying that, I felt a little bit defensive then because I never broke into houses in my neighbourhood. You know, this is in Gilston Bay and where we went to school, at high school. So, you know, it wasn't in our particular neighbourhood, but it's funny you mentioned the word conscience um, because I was was giving a lecture to um, Rob White's criminology students down at university one day. I used to do a little bit of that for Rob. And I was asked a question from one of his criminology students, honour students, and it was a question that I never forgot. And it was probably, um, she said, well, haven't you got a conscience? And uh, I had to really think about that. I have. I'm very conscious of, of people and, 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 you know, a lot of situations. But I never really thought about it. You know, I was never attacking the person. I was always, you know, it was always about the property or the money. But the conscience is a question that, played a big part in, in, in my um, rehabilitation over me later years. But, yeah, I, it's not that I didn't have a conscience. I was, um, once I started getting money and breaking into places, uh, I developed a, a, a thrill for it. It was exciting. It was, uh, it was really, for me, a, an adrenaline kick. And um, I've always said, or well, I've said for quite a while, I see three reasons for crime. Um, need, greed and addiction. 
need, you can do something about it. If you need a loaf of bread, well, go out and get a job or maybe steal a loaf of bread. You can fix that. Greed, the more you got, the more you want. That's not so much something that you can change so easily. But for me, mine was addiction. You know, I was addicted to the thrill of climbing through a window and, um, you know, I wasn't looking through panty doors and all that sort of stuff. I was just in there to do a particular thing, find a money box, find a drawer with money in it and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, it just became extremely exciting. When you look back then, do you think there would have been anything that, that someone could have said that might have sent you down a different path? Was there, would there have been any way I, of getting through to the young Tony? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But the, the the way to do it, you know, my dad passed away when I was nine and, um, you know, I, I was, and I'm not saying this is an excuse at all, but, you know, I, I, I started, you know, really not caring too much then, I suppose, not, not caring about the people around me, but, you know, I lost my way a little bit. So you yeah. think if you'd maybe had some, that father figure, if you'd had a good father figure or someone in that role, maybe you would have oh, had a different uh, kind of guidance? Uh, absolutely. I remember in the Navy cadets, me and a couple of kids in the street used to go to Navy cadets. I had the uniform on and, you know, loved it. But because I, that was where I had my first cigarette, I was never allowed to go again, you know, um, I joined, you know, I was joined the Merchant Navy where you do the sailing ships, you know, and the tankers when I was 17. And um, I was in Sydney having a good time when I got the call from Mum saying, look, we've got a boat here for you, you know, um, just come back to Tassie. No, Mum, I'm, I'm not coming back. You know, those were, you know, if I'd have made the right decisions and someone to sit down and tell me about it, you know, and discuss it with me, you know, my life could have been, any, you know, so different. I think about that often, but um, one of those opportunities lost, you know, if I would have realised what I was actually doing beforehand. You left Tassie uh, after you finished school and, and came up to Queensland. How did you end yeah. up in Boggo Road? <laughs> um, we were in Cairns. Um, I robbed a particular motel. Um, he's seen me walking out the driveway, um, called the police and, um, <laughs> a chase ensued and, um, I actually got away. Um, but <laughs> I just happened to be about the only person that was sweating in an air conditioned shopping centre. <laughs> so, uh, got questioned by the detectives and one thing led to another. Um, and I ended up in, I think, Bogger Road for three months. That was my first prison experience, yeah. And what was it like inside Boggo Road, especially I guess as a as a Tasmanian? Who gave you the run who gave you the rundown of, of how to survive in there? Um the, I, and seriously, I mean, I am a seventeen year old Tasmanian. Um and they noticed the fact that I didn't even have airs on my legs, you know. I, I was absolutely terrified. I didn't know what was going on, you know all the way down from the Sunshine Coast to Queensland, you know, I was thinking you get raped and attacked and bashed after death and all the stuff that you think about, you know, not experience in actual prison. I'd been in boys' zones before, but this was a different level. And um, I was lucky enough to 
see the barber. The barber was the first prisoner I actually spoke to, big, thick-set fella. He sort of set down the ground rules for me. You know, you mind your own business, you just do your time, defend yourself whenever you have to, don't ever let anyone hit you. Um, you know, and told me the rules. You never tell, you know, you mind your own business and that's exactly what I've done. How quickly did you have to defend yourself? Uh, after about three days. What happened? Um, <laughs> I was sitting down in the yard, small yard. I was what, I was in what they called the boys' yard and that was the guys under the age of 18. There was some serious crooks in there and they weren't even close to being that old. But, you know, there I was and I was sitting on the card table uh, one day watching a game of cards and probably the only fellow that I really spoke to in conversation um, was told by someone in the yard to obviously king hit me. Um, he did off the table and I sort of knew before I hit the ground that I had to fight this bugger. Anyway, I did and luckily enough he was weaker than me. So it was just the fact that I defended myself and you sort of, you know, and you sort of let be. Um, yeah, it, it was a pretty exper scary experience. I mean, I was saying the next day someone else happened, uh, same thing, new to the yard like me, a bit bigger than me, you know, probably older. He laid down and, and, and cropped the beating, obviously because he was scared. Um, and for, you know, the next week or so, couple of weeks that I was there before I went to Woodford, um, he got passions most days, so you know, uh, it's a it's an extremely well. There's no other way to put it. It's a terrifying experience when you first go to jail. This is conversations with Sarah Kanoski. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. When you found yourself back in Risdon Prison down in Tassie, did it feel yeah. tiny like, I don't know, that it was kind of inevitable that this was going to be life in and out of jail or were you not thinking about what the future might be? I, I, I never really thought about it. I, and, you know, thinking back at it now, I, I, I never, and all through me 20 or 30 criminal life experience, that, I, you know, it was always about the moment or tomorrow, you know. We didn't think too much further because that wasn't what it was about, you know. I never thought to appreciate money or put it away. I had no understanding of that sort of stuff. I'd never learnt it and never really experienced it. You know, money was there one minute, gone the next, you know, and I was quite handy at getting money. So, you know, you, yeah, you, you very rarely think of years ahead. I mean, looking now as a fellow that's been out of jail um, for 17 years and 57 or 8, however old I am, <laughs> I didn't expect to get this old dome. Seriously, I, I, I never did. You know, for me growing up, I wouldn't have seen myself past 30, 35 because, you know, the life I lived, you know, I lived with addiction and all, all the dangerous stuff that you can be involved in along the way. And, you know, I've, 
been extremely lucky. I should be dead over a hundred times because I'm not the smartest bugger when I've got a belly full of scotch and an arm full of drugs and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, I didn't expect to get this old, seriously. So, you know, did I think about my future? No, not at all. One of the, the crimes you spent time back in Risdon for was, was safe cracking. How did you yep. get into that? Oh, it's not exactly safe cracking as, as the way most people know it. I didn't stand up next to a safe with a doctor's stethoscope and, and pick the numbers. That wasn't it at all. But we used to open safes, yeah. I mean, that, that was just the progress. Years inside, you know, it's just stuff you learn over the years. Is it, yeah. is it true you robbed a judge during that time, <laughs> Tony? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, we didn't know he was a judge at the time. I mean, the Crawford and Crawford sign out the front of his lawyer's office might have given us a clue if we'd have been thinking that way. But, um, yeah, we, yeah, we got a judge. Then how did that play out <laughs> for you when it came to sentencing? Yeah, no, not real well, not real well. <laughs> and, and and me being the non-thinker that I am sometimes, I'm actually trying to get in front of Mr Crawford, right, because he's good on sentencing. <laughs> Even though he was the one you robbed? I didn't click until he started yelling at me. <laughs> and then it clicked, oh, I might be in a bit of bother here. Yeah, so I, I didn't get to see him in sentencing, thankfully. But, um, you know, one judge is friends with the other and I ended up getting three years. But, um, yeah, we probably should have been a little bit more careful or picked another option maybe. But anyway. When you did get out of jail in in Tasmania for the last time, did you have a home or or a job to go to? No, not really. I had a partner that I was... Loved to bits and she passed away four years ago now. But, yeah, I used to either go home, but there was a lot of times that I've got out of prison and and been, well, homeless, yeah. Does it sometimes feel on the outside that it's safer or or at least, I don't know, more known to be back inside? Oh, well, the, the, the thing is with prison, I've done, well, I've done a long time in prison. There's been lots of intervals along the way. But, you know, we're doing a long time in prison. It's very regimented. And especially when you're in such a prison like Risdon, it's very neglectful and it really doesn't push towards opportunity and life change and and all that sort of stuff. But what, what I'm trying to say is institutionalisation, and I didn't realise I was institutionalised until probably 19 years ago now that, you know, I was really struggling with being free. I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't living in the life that I'd lived all my life. You know, I wasn't drinking, I wasn't doing drugs and, you know, you have to face all your demons. And when, when you're doing a long time in jail, you become institutionalised and you you actually forget how to live. You, you really lose all your social and living skills if you're doing long-term prison time. One of the places you could get work with a prison record was on fishing boats. Tell me what happened on one of the first boats you worked on. Well, it was, it was Bridport and, and and it was me. I'd always wanted to go out in a fishing boat. Anyway, I applied for this job and and got it. 
and I thought, fantastic, it was my first time out in a boat, you know, and I had that, you know, Titanic experience where you're up on the front of the boat thinking that you're king of the world as you're going, as you're going out to sea, you know, and I was loving every bit of, bit of it, but when it started to rain, I was getting wet up the front of the boat where I was sleeping anyway. It turns out that the skipper was an absolute arsehole and there was me and two other blokes on the boat and it was a shark boat and on the 10th day it was doing me head in. So I just said to him, got up one morning, I said, look, man, I need you to take me to a tree. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, I don't care where it is, just take me to a tree. I need to get off this boat. He said, oh, no, I'm sorry, we've got another 10 days to go yet. And I thought, well, this ain't going to be fun. So I thought, I've seen in the distance, right, Swan Island. <laughs> and I thought, well, my little Ed went over time, a man with a plan. <laughs> I thought about it overnight. I thought, well, I'm going to swim to the island, jump off, swim to the island. I didn't know anyone was on there. My plan was, said on fire, someone's got to come to put it out. And hip hip hooray, I'm saved. But um, anyway, I got up in the morning, packed a bag that I'm going to need and um, put on two pairs of pants and a sheepskin jacket because <laughs> I'm not a thinker, as I said. Anyway, I got up and I said, look, man, are you going to take me to that tree? And he said, no, I told you, we've got another 10 days to go yet. So I said, all right, then see ya. <laughs> and walked up the front of the boat and dived off like an Olympic swimmer. Do you remember what that water was like? I mean, how much ocean swimming had you done? None, none. <laughs> and thinking about it now, we was fishing for shark, but anyway. <laughs> and I, what, you just, you just swam towards where you saw this island? Yeah, well, I jumped in, dived in, and, well, I started to sink because I had too many clothes on. I'm still a bit dirty on losing that jacket. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I got all my gear off and I lost my bag and it had my matches. I lost everything, you know. So I remember after a couple of hours I was swimming towards the island and I made it up onto the beach. I couldn't walk straight, you know. I was, I was, in, I was in bother. I was, <laughs> I was struggling. You must have almost the... had hypothermia swimming in that, in that water. I did have hypothermia. If, the light, if there wasn't the lighthouse keeper on Spawn Island... Turns out there's a lighthouse keeper on there. I can't remember his name. I wish I could, but a lovely, lovely fella. He's found me half dead in his front yard. What and, did he uh, do with you? Well, I come to in the shower, right? They had the shower on me, screaming my tits off because hypothermia really hurts, <laughs> right? <laughs> so they've, they've dragged their double bed off their bed and dragged it outside because it was a lovely sunny day. And... Like, we sat down and had a conversation. Like, you said, where'd you come from? <laughs> and I said, I said, well, I jumped off a fishing boat. And he said, oh, right, you're the first person. We've had lots of visitors, but you're the first person that's ever swam. <laughs> anyway, we're having a chat and the search and rescue got on his radio. And they said, well, look, some, I'll say peanut, because that's, you know, some peanuts jumped off a fishing boat. Do you want us to come and have a look for him or do you want to go and have a uh, Yeah, do you? Uh, he said, oh, he's sitting in the kitchen. <laughs> and, and they said, well, do you want us to come and get him or do you want to fly him back to Muscle Row Bay? And because I didn't really want Search and Rescue to come and get me because, you know, I'm a criminal and <laughs> if they'd have got me, they probably wouldn't have let me go. <laughs> yeah, he, he 
put the bed out the front and made the bed up for me. They cooked me and baked me on everything. I spent the day there. It was fantastic. Uh, taught him how to catch rabbits. You and taught all him that how sort to catch stuff. rabbits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For a lot of Cooper, who didn't have any many wildlife skills, but anyway, lovely, lovely fella, and yeah, beautiful group of people. It was <laughs> a then, little bit of an adventure. And then he flew you back. What was the flight like? Oh, it was pretty cool. Like we got in the plane, and he just flew straight off the edge of the island. And off we went, but we flew around the fishing boat that I jumped off, <laughs> and and to obviously I didn't know this at the time to get the rego, and he sent the skipper the bill for flying me from Spawn Island <laughs> to Muscle Row Bay, which I thought was pretty cool. It's pretty uh, cheeky. <laughs> yeah, but but as it turns out. He was a maggot of a skipper and always has been. And the other two guys that were on the boat, they were on there for another 10 days. He paid them 200 bucks each with a cheque to bounce. So turns out that he was a bit of a rat bag anyway. But funny thing about it, I'm laying in the lounge room floor in, in Rovers and one day and the phone rang and my lady answered the phone and she said, oh, it's that skipper of the boat. <laughs> I said, what does he want? And she said, I don't know, ask him. So I got on the phone and I said, what's going on, man? What do you want? What are you ringing me for? And he said, oh, I just wanted to ring you. I really liked the way you worked. And uh, <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm not joking, seriously. He said, I like the way you worked. I want to know whether you want to come back out again. And all I could say, darling, was, listen, you phone I jumped off the first time. What do I want to come out again? <laughs> But, it must have been but, pretty desperate for crew, is all I'm thinking, Tony. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, may, or, or, or maybe he wanted to get me out there and just throw me off Keep and use me for shark boat just to, you know, to pay me back for the flight fare back to Muscle Row Bay. Yeah. You, you spent time on a, another fishing boat, the Diana. What kind of yeah. boat was she? Uh, she was a, and still is a long line fishing boat down here for mules in Tasmania. Yeah, that was magic, you know, a big boat and we used to, long lines, we used to catch blue eye and and pink ling down here in Tassie and then we'd bugger off up to Sydney for five or six months of the year and go up there and catch kingfish and, and, and Maui. But, yeah, life-changing experience for me, one of the best things that I loved it to bits. You know, I, I worked for three years for Mills and, you know, I was earning pretty good money because you do, on a good boat. And, yeah, I, I was living the dream. I, I really, I loved being out in the ocean. And uh, it came at a really good time for me. I was around 43. And uh, and I got up one morning, we'd get up at five in the morning to shoot away the lines, go and have a nap for a couple of hours and get up at eight and then start the fish. But I was up about four one morning and, I was lying on the on the fish hatch is where we store the fish, just laying there staring up at the sky. It was, you know, dead quiet, nothing but the stars and blackness and, and me and the boat. And I was staring at the sky and it was that time, the first time that I'd actually really started to appreciate me freedom and being free and... You know, like being in prison, one thing, especially when you're in there for a long time over a period of time, one thing that you sort of don't really do is look up, you know, at the sky because there either isn't one or all you see is the bars. 
So, you know, you tend not to look up. And I really didn't for a long, long time. Well, right up until I was 40, 43. And it was, it was, yeah, it was amazing for me. I started to really appreciate and understand my freedom for, for what it actually was. Mm. Yeah. A while after you finished working on boats, a companion came into your life that you <laughs> still have with you now. Tell me about her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's my little bestie, princess. I I got a, you know, I, I call Cindy my life partner because I love her for the rest of my life. But I got her after Cindy passed away, three weeks after we passed away, I took a friend of mine up to get the brother dog to my dog, a little English Staffy. Yeah, and um, when they brought down her dog, they brought down Princess as well. And she was a beautiful little brindle colour, like a dog that me and Cindy used to have. And I heard straight up, you know, Cindy say from upstairs, take her own, Tony, take her own. So um, I did. And um, the best thing I've done in a long time for many reasons. She actually, I got her when she was six weeks old. And um, when she was eight weeks old, I was down Margate, staying up the back of a friend's in my camper. I really didn't have anywhere to live then. Um, in my camper, and I fell asleep with the gas on. And uh, at four o'clock in the morning, she's bit me on the nose and woke me up. Yeah, gas in my eyes and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, if, if she didn't bite me on the nose, only time she's ever done it, if she didn't do that, I probably wouldn't be here. So we've gotten extremely attached from there. You know, she comes everywhere with me. I'd be lost without her, you know. I don't sort of tend to mix with a lot of people too much and single lad and I've just got me, me dog, five budgies and six goldfish. This is Conversations on ABC Radio. What are you doing for work now, Tony? I went from a fisherman because I was a fisherman for over 10 years and I loved every bit of it. But when I got Princess, I sort of couldn't leave her, so I can't take a dog on the boat. So I had to start up fencing home maintenance and gardens and I've been doing that. That's what I do for work. Like a, a lot of ex-prisoners, it was hard for you to find your own place after you left jail. Tell me about the day you moved in to your first place by yourself. Oh, it was amazing. I was lucky enough to do some work for a fellow who visited the pub where I used to drink at, the Prince of Wales, and well, still drink at. And uh, Jacob, he's a lovely fellow, and I ended up doing a unit for him, one of his units, redoing the floors and the kitchen and all that sort of stuff, and he liked what I'd done. He knew of me situation, and um, he had a unit in Lena Valley, and he, he let me rent that, and I've been doing that for four years. And it's amazing, you know, you know, your own sense of space. So I don't have many people there, and I've become quite protective of my spot. But this is, for me, you know, <laughs> as an adult, this is the first time that I've actually lived by myself without being under the instructions or guidance of a uniform or a skirt. <laughs> you know, and, you know, you've got to understand changing your life, not going to jail, you know, you've got to change your own identity. And for me, 
getting my own place to live and, and being independent and having to sort out your money and be able to pay your rent and, and do all the things that you need to do in a normal living lifestyle. You, you, you lose them skills when you're in prison and while living on the boat, gave me a, a, an absolutely new sense of freedom. The, the other thing that has been extremely positive in, in my efforts to change is the people that I hang with now while I've still got my old circle of friends and still lucky enough to, you know, have my mates that, that I've always had. Um, we just don't do the things that we used to do. But I've had a pleasure of meeting a particular group of people that have been fantastic in, in helping me stay on the straight and narrow, if you like, you know, help me in many, many ways to identify as Tony Bull rather than Ted Bull. You know, I lived a, a life of 40 odd years being Ted Bull and a particular identity and, and that sort of stuff. And I, I hid in that for a long time, you know. It's really sometimes a difficult process to change your own sense of self and who you are. I won't mention names, but Dave's and Dave's, you know, I know a few Dave's and, <laughs> you know, that they've been extremely important of showing me who Tony Bull is and like, really liking Tony Bull. That's been probably the biggest life changer for me is, you know, I'm, I'm accepted in a particular crowd and I'm seriously the odd one out. I'm an ex-criminal and I'm hanging with, you know, insurance people and millionaires and all that sort of stuff. Um, the battery point elite, you know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> um, seriously, I'm the odd one out, but I fit like glue in many ways and, yeah, it's been a pleasure for me, really. But, you know, I've, I've been awful lucky as well. Tell me about the program that you're trying to set up in Hobart for guys in the situation you were in back in the day of, of leaving prison without much to head into? Well, I, I, I've always been a part of prison advocacy and, and I mean, I really like to say, you know, why, why can't a young fella go to jail a car thief and, and come out a carpenter? What would you rather, someone build your house or rob your house? All that takes is opportunity and education. Yeah. Education and opportunity. Why don't they do that? But for now, I'm involved with the Red Cross and their Justice Division. Over last year, we were trying to develop a program where um, a prisoner getting out of jail that wanted to change his life and do something different would be connected to a mentor, and that mentor being me. I'd be the shoulder to lean on if if you wanted, and I, I can see the you know, the things that can happen and, and I can entice you to probably go a different way or make a different choice. So I was to be the mentor and, and I took this to heart and become really passionate about it and I still am. I actually called the, the probe, Matty asked me to name it, so I called it the Beth Program. After my mum, yeah, and... Um, for the sake of the program, the best stood for belief, empathy, trust and hope. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, we never got the funding for it last year, but we're continuing the process and um, hopefully that we'll be able to bring it to life in one form or another. You know, you still live in, in Hobart. What's it like when you go past 
Risden Prison now on the outside? Uh, 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 it's sort of funny, and I'm glad you asked me that question because for so I'm getting a shiver up my back thinking about it now. Um, for 17 years, I, I, once I got out of jail last time, I, I, I decided that I wasn't going to go back. You know, I didn't mind representing once, but, you know, now it's not the case. But one of the things that I used to do and still do um, at least once a month or twice a month, I used to catch a bus over there when I never had a licence, but what I used to do, because I grew up in Risdenvale, I used to catch a bus from town and go around Risdenvale, the suburb of Risdenvale, and go down memory lane because I loved growing up there. It was fantastic. And then I would get off down at the Risdenbrook Dam and I'd walk up to the hill, now I drive, I'd walk up to the top of the hill where I can look over the prison and I can see the entirety of the jail. And what I do is look at the yards and, you know, what a lot of people do when they get out of jail is forget how they felt when they're in there. And, and I just thought this one day, I thought, you know, you know, when you get out of jail, it's one of the most euphoric feelings that you're ever going to have in your life. And the last thing you do is think about the sentence you just had. So now I'm getting shivers again. Now I seriously go over there at least once or twice a month just to sit on top of that hill, have a can of beer, and um, just remember how I felt when I was there. And that brings me back to square one and, you know, keeps me on the path that, that I'm on. And I've been doing that for 17 years, darling, you know. I really wish you all the best, Tony, and, and really appreciate you sharing your story on Conversations. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. It's been, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. I'm journalist Matthew Condon. I lived through an era where crime and corruption permeated the lives of so many Queenslanders. Senior police allowing extensive criminal activity to flourish undetected. Police received sexual favours. But there's another story, the sex workers who were caught in the middle. Found dead after blowing the whistle on senior officers. She did do the right thing and she suffered for it. Dig, sirens are coming. A six-part podcast series from the ABC. Right now on the ABC Listen app.